This morning I have the privilege of preaching out of John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. But before we go to the text this morning, I'd like to set the scene for us, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, which begins with the words, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now this is John's way of opening a new scene. He's letting us know that the curtains have closed on the previous scene. And he's about to introduce a new theme. Now last week, God blessed us through Rod's sermon on verses 1 through 9, where Jesus goes to a pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. Now this is where many of the disabled used to gather. And it's here that Jesus asks a man who had been an invalid for 38 years if he wants to get well. And then he heals him. Then starting in the second half of verse 9, we read, The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is the man who told you to pick it up and walk? So now we learn that the scene that John is describing is a scene about conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And starting in verse 16, John helps us to understand just how serious this confrontation is. Because as the writer, he has the benefit of hindsight. And looking back, he realized that Jesus was not only speaking with the Jewish leaders. He was actually speaking face to face with his killers. John writes in verse 16, Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is a gripping scene. It's an intense clash between Jesus and Jewish authorities. Where the Jews start persecuting Jesus, and then Jesus replies in his own defense by calling God his Father. To which the Jews were right to interpret as a statement about having equal authority with God. It's really an extraordinary passage. So this entire scene of John chapter 5 becomes like an informal trial where Jesus takes the stand in his own defense and testifies about himself. So please stand with me and listen now as I read from John 5, beginning with verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. 
He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You may be seated. My prayer for this sermon is that the Spirit of God will open our eyes so that we will gain a new perspective on the authority of Jesus Christ and come to possess a deeper and truer understanding of what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. And that through this changing of our minds, we will learn to see ourselves as servants and come to know Jesus as our master. In verse 19, we read, Jesus gave them this answer. So let's start here, because there's a question that's being implied. And unless we know what that question is, I think we're going to have a hard time understanding what it is that Jesus is saying. The question I believe Jesus is answering here is, by what authority are you doing these things? In our conversations, we might say, what right do you have? Or who gives you the right? Now here's why I think that's the question Jesus is answering. Going back into John chapter 2, where Jesus clears the temple courts, the Jews see him driving out animals and flipping over the tables of the money changers, and they ask him to prove that he has the authority to do these things. Now in chapter 2, Jesus does answer their question but he does so with a riddle. He says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. But of course, this is lost on them, because they think he's speaking of the temple they're standing in, which took over 40 years to build. 
So that interaction comes to an end. But for the Jews, the question still remains unanswered. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this scene as well where Jesus clears the temple courts. And in each of their gospels, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders come to Jesus and ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This is a consistent theme at the center of the conflict between Jesus and Jewish leadership. And it's an important question. Now fast forward back to John 5, where Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath and appears to break with Jewish law by telling the man to carry his mat. And this is where I believe John records a clear and concise answer to the question, by what authority are you doing these things? So let's consider the answer that Jesus gives in two parts. First, We'll consider, the, uh, we'll consider where Jesus gets his authority. And second, we'll answer the question, what authority has he been given? And finally, we'll consider the implications for our lives. So in verses 19 and 20, Jesus makes it clear that his authority comes from his Father. He says, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Jesus has not exalted himself. His authority is not self-proclaimed. Notice the power and humility in his statement. The Father has given the Son complete access to himself showing him all that he does. And the son humbles himself, explaining that he can do nothing except for what the father is already at work doing. Now in the context of John 5, Jesus just healed the man at the pool. And not only that, but he told him to pick up and carry his mat on the Sabbath. So he's testifying about his authority by doing something that only God can do. And at the same time, he's challenging the authority of the Jewish establishment by declaring that it's right for the healed man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. This flies in the face of the Jewish leaders because they were the ones who had the authority to interpret God's laws. And their judgment was that it was unlawful to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So what's going on? Is Jesus breaking the law? Well, we have to remember that Jesus said himself that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So what's he doing? Why did he tell this man to pick up and carry his mat on the Sabbath? So I think there's the big picture, and then I think there's something going on beneath the surface that's more nuanced and specific to this scene. Big picture. Jesus is saying without saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
A rhythm of one day rest for every six days work is a gift from God. God's intent was not to prohibit his people from working on the Sabbath, but to set his people free from their work on the Sabbath. So take rest, enjoy it, embrace it, be thankful for it. Now the other piece to this is more pointed. And it relates specifically to biblical law versus rabbinical law. First off, the prohibition to carry a burden on the Sabbath can be found in Jeremiah 17. So let's look at that. It reads, Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring out a load from your houses or do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your ancestors. So Jeremiah 17 is the biblical text that forms the basis for not being allowed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. But this text doesn't make it clear just what constitutes a load or a burden. So in an effort to be faithful, the Jews would build out a biblical text if it was vague. And that interpretation would become law. That is, rabbinic law. So it's under rabbinic law that it was prohibited to carry a mat on the Sabbath unless a man is lying on the mat. Did you catch that? Under rabbinic law, if a man is lying on the mat, it's acceptable to carry it. There is no offense. So let's recap. The man at the pool was unable to walk and unable to care for himself. So somebody had to carry him on his mat to the pool on the Sabbath. And then Jesus heals him. So now the man who was crippled is walking. He's doing what he was told to do. He's carrying his mat. But the Jews see this and rebuke him for it. In fact, even after the man tells them that he had been healed, they don't praise God, and they don't even ask him who healed him. Instead, they ask him, who told you to carry your mat? Do you see what's happening here? What surely began as a sincere effort on the part of the Jews to honor God by being faithful to his law has turned into something that's not God-honoring at all. By healing this man and telling him to carry his mat on the Sabbath, Jesus is exposing the hearts of the Jewish leaders. He's exposing that they would rather see this man be carried out on his back and remain a cripple than to rejoice over the mercies of God if that meant repenting over being wrong about their interpretation of the law. Jesus is making a powerful judgment that the Jewish leaders don't have the love of God in their hearts. 
He's shining light into the darkness. This entire scene up to this point is a declaration of the authority of Jesus in both word and deed. He heals the man at the pool, demonstrating his authority to give life. And then he tells the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, demonstrating his authority to judge. Not only judge what is lawful, but also to judge the hearts of men. This sign in John 5 is a manifestation of the authority that the Son has received from the Father. But instead of receiving his judgment and honoring him, the Jewish leaders tried all the more to kill him. Spiritual blindness is a frightening thing. Jesus said that he can do only what he sees his father doing. What a truly profound statement. I wonder how many of us see what God is doing in the world. Do we see him giving rest? Do we see him seeking and saving the lost? Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see. So now that we know where Jesus gets his authority, let's listen once more as he tells us, as he tells the Jewish leaders what exactly he's been given authority over. Picking up in verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but he has crossed over from death into life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Maybe even more astonishing than stating that his authority comes from God. Here Jesus is saying that God has given him authority over life and death. His authority is endless. There is truly no boundary to it. He has the power to both give life and the power to judge. It's like he's setting in place the bookends of his authority. And there is nothing outside the scope of what he's been given. His power is absolute. His authority is eternal. And not only 
does he have authority to judge? But he's been entrusted with all judgment so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. We should have no doubt at this point that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Because how dare he say that God has entrusted him with all judgment so that he would be honored like God. If this were a trial, which is how it reads, Jesus is the defendant. And he's just taken the stand in his own defense. And the Jews are both prosecutor and jury. And John makes it clear in the 18th verse that the Jews have handed down a guilty verdict on the charge of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. So we've said that Jesus has been given authority from God the Father, and he's been given authority over everything. In the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, the risen Lord came to his disciples and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And according to Philippians chapter 2, God exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All authority has been given to him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now I'd like to continue down this path because I think this is where the text is leading us. What if I told you that there's a connection between your spiritual maturity and the authority that you've given Jesus Christ over your life? Some of us have been Christians our whole lives, but we're still spiritually immature. Our spiritual growth has been stunted. We may look like adults, and we may have the outward appearance of maturity, but our faith is hardly anything more than it was at our conversion because we insist on maintaining our independence. But I'm here to tell you that for those who are in Christ, our possessions are not our own. Our will is not our own. Our life is not our own. The sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. What else did you think Paul meant when he wrote to the Galatian church? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. If you haven't given Jesus Christ authority over your life, you have not yet received him as Lord. And if you have not received Jesus as your Lord, do not expect him to be your Savior. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. You see, the lordship of Jesus Christ over your life is the evidence that he is also your savior. Have you considered what the Lord means? Excuse me, what the word Lord means. The term refers to someone who has power and authority over others. So when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm confessing that Jesus has power and authority over my life. There is nothing hidden from him, nothing that is off limits to him. Jesus is Lord. And if he's my Lord, that makes me his servant. One of the problems facing Christians in the U.S. is that we struggle to see ourselves as servants. In fact, sometimes I wonder if we've come to see ourselves not as servants, but as volunteers. Volunteers for Jesus. Sounds ridiculous just saying it out loud. Because a volunteer is someone who can choose to take part in the work when it seems good to them. And like volunteers, we often step in and out of our duty. We sign up to help. We contribute to the cause. And then we retreat to some place other than our master's house. I know it's uncomfortable to hear these things, but we need to understand that our actions are an expression of our beliefs. We can no longer divorce the Lordship of Jesus Christ from the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now let us consider the likeness of a servant. A servant is someone who performs their duty on behalf of their master. A servant does not set the agenda. He follows the agenda. A servant is devoted to the interests of his master. A servant gives himself up to the will of another. This is why Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. 
This is why James refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Peter refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. This is why Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. This is why John refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. These men of great faith understood themselves to be servants because Jesus Christ has power and authority over them. He is both their Savior and their Lord. A few weeks ago, Dan talked about having the post-Easter blues. He asked the question, what comes after Resurrection Sunday? What happens on Monday morning? I want to thank Dan for encouraging us to stay faithful in this season. And I'd like to build on what he said by saying that obedience comes on Monday. Resurrection comes on Sunday, and obedience comes on Monday. There's only one response that's fitting for the one whose life has been resurrected from the dead. What follows is a life of gratitude and obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said, if anyone has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Hear me now. Resurrection comes on Sunday and obedience comes on Monday. Because if Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, he is not the savior of your life either. Listen again to verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So we must now ask the question, to whom will the Son Give life. Our answer can be found repeatedly throughout the full counsel of God, but let's look at just one verse of John chapter 1. Verse 12 reads To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is who the Son is pleased to give eternal life. To those who believe in his name, to those who receive him. I'd like you to consider a new way of thinking about what it means to receive Jesus. When you think of receiving him, think of it as if you were to give him access to yourself. David wrote in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting. To receive Jesus Christ is to give him unfiltered access to rule over every aspect of who you are. And what will happen if you receive him in this way? Do you know? Do you know what he promises to those who receive him? To those who give him access to themselves? He will likewise receive you. And you will have unrestricted access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will receive you and you will have access to the one who was with God in the beginning, to the one through whom all things were made, to the true light who gives light to everyone, to the one who is full of grace and full of truth. And that my brothers and sisters, is eternal life. I love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the witness of your word and the testimony of your son. I ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will convince us of these truths and help us to truly receive you and exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, to his rightful place of authority over our lives. Amen. Now, before I introduce you, to the young men who will be leading us in communion this morning. I'd like to give you an opportunity for confession. Because some of us need confession this morning before we partake in the Lord's Supper. Some of us need to go to God and re-surrender our lives to him and seek his forgiveness for withholding ourselves from him for refusing to worship his son as good and faithful servants. If that's you this morning, I encourage you to confess your sin. If it's helpful to wash in water, to remind yourself that unless Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, you are unclean. I encourage you to do that now before participating in communion. Before the quarantine, my family was blessed to have the opportunity to break bread with three young men from our body. I'm so proud of these guys for the way that they have committed themselves to walking with Jesus. You know, my wife and I are also raising three little boys. 
Right now, my son Canaan is six. My son Jude is four. And my son Jacob Justice is two. And Grace and I hope and pray that our boys will grow in wisdom and mature in the faith and become like these three men. So it's my honor to introduce you today to Noah, Taylor, and Connor as they lead us this morning in communion. Hey, Crossroads, I'm Noah. I'm Connor. And I'm Taylor. Um, and first of all, we just want to say how honored we are to be able to do life with such an amazing community and how honored we are to be able to lead you guys in communion this morning. Um, so I think earlier this week when Brian reached out to us and asked if we wanted to lead communion, um, individually we all started to think about what communion means to us and then how that relates to Brian's sermon of Christ being the ultimate authority. Um, and I think for me personally, the first thing that came to mind was how Christ called us to take communion as an act of obedience, um, whether that be um, as roommates like us um, with your families back home or, or even at church when all of us are together. Um, and I think it's important to remember that that Christ calls us to obedience for our own good. Um, and when we walk out in obedience, what he's called us to do, it only strengthens and deepens our love and appreciation for what he did for us. And it strengthens our love ultimately for, for him and the Father. Um, so I want to challenge you guys this morning to take that act of obedience. But we also want to challenge you guys to do that with a humble heart um, in, the, in the way of a servant, just like Christ humbled himself for us. And so we want to read you this passage um, from Philippians, Philippians 2, that we think displays Christ's attitude, um, ultimately that gave him, which ultimately gave him um, complete authority. Um, so your attitude should be the same as that as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature, the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, so as Christ followers, I see communion as an opportunity to remember and to repent and to reflect uh, as we come in a spirit of humility, uh, as using the sacrament of communion. Uh, and to me, it serves as a great equalizer um, in the body of Christ, that no matter what titles or accomplishments, what failures or life circumstances you're going through, uh, as a body of Christ, we come to the foot of the cross with, with arms open wide, nothing to offer, but just in remembrance of what the price he paid for us, um, that while we we're so bad, he was so good, uh, and he came, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we challenge you guys to get your heart in a spot, um, a humble spot to accept this gift and to remember um, what he did for us on the cross. For me, these, these past several weeks have been an incredible reminder of my, my own depravity and the weight of my own sin. And I think that's been such an important lesson for me to learn um, as it's allowed me to have a much greater appreciation of the importance of the sacrifice that Christ made for us when he died on the cross. Uh, so with that in mind, Crossroads family, I invite you to take part in communion with us this morning taking the bread as a symbol of Christ's body broken for you, taking the cup as a symbol of his blood shed for you. Take, 
eat, drink, and remember the ultimate sacrifice that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ made for us, and most importantly, his deep, deep love for each of us. We love you, Crossroads family. Miss you. Hope to see you soon. You guys love you. Back to you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs>